Hi everyone, welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. Well, we've made it to double-digit episodes, episode 10. And you know, I want to get honest with you guys and gals for a few minutes before getting into the fun stuff. When I first started the podcast, I had no idea how many episodes I would do, or really how long I'd even do the podcast for. I remember someone asking me early on, how many episodes are you going to do? And my answer? I'm not really sure. I guess I'll do it until people stop listening. And that is still my intent today. But if I'm being honest, it's hard. And a lot of work. A lot of very early mornings mixed in with some very late nights. And I don't collect any money for it. On top of the fact that I still have a full-time job. And getting paid to do this podcast was never the goal or the mission. The goal was to help alcoholics and addicts and raise awareness, and that hasn't changed. But I also don't want to lose sight of that or lose focus on my own daily goals, which is easy to do, especially with a podcast. It's very easy to get caught up and obsessed with the numbers, meaning the number of listeners or downloads, especially when you're a perfectionist like me. It's very easy to start focusing on the growth rather than focusing on the mission. Primarily because you feel like growth equates to more people being helped. And the numbers and growth become the only tangible measuring stick for the quality of your work. Is this something people enjoy even listening to? It's easy for doubt to start creeping in. But I also remember telling people way before the podcast ever launched that if I can just help one person, then it would all be worth it. And I have. I've had so many people reach out and tell me how they've been impacted. I've had people reach out and ask for help. I even recently conducted my first intervention, which was very successful. Now, I always knew that the mission and purpose would be fluid, meaning that it would evolve over time, just like everything in life. I even mention it in episode one when talking about my purpose and mission. And I tell you all of this because I'd like to ask for your help. And don't worry, I'm not asking for sympathy or money. As the listener, I'd like to ask for your feedback and suggestions, your honest feedback. What do you enjoy most about the podcast? What do you enjoy least? And what would you like to hear more of? I plan to incorporate interviews in the coming weeks and months, so I'd like to know who you'd be interested in listening to. I'd also like to start a Q&A portion in future episodes. What questions would you like to hear answered? Anyways... I know I have a broad audience, so I just want to make sure that my efforts are focused in the right places and on the right topics. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. On today's episode, I'm going to continue my sobriety journey, specifically with two key moments in my fourth week at the Sober Living Home. Next, I want to give my thoughts on a very prevalent topic in the recovery community, regardless of your years of sobriety, and that topic is relapses. And lastly, I want to discuss the daily five and the three critical components of financial fitness. So as always, let's get started. So it's my fourth week in sober living, and at this point, I'm feeling really good across the board, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Now don't get me wrong, in no way is life perfect. Remember, I'm still putting together all of the broken pieces, and that doesn't happen overnight. But the good news is that I'm trending in the right direction and building momentum. Now, something you may or may not be familiar with in the recovery community is something I refer to as the chip system. 
The chip system is basically a reward system for people when they reach certain milestones related to their number of consecutive days of sobriety. For instance, when you go to your very first meeting and decide to try a life of recovery, you get what's called your 24-hour chip. Now, when you get your 24-hour chip, it doesn't always correlate to 24 hours. It could be 12 hours or 10 days at that point. This chip is more symbolic of your decision to get sober than it is an actual reflection of your time sober. Take me, for example. I didn't attend my first meeting until I was in treatment for about 10 days. So obviously, I had more than 24 hours of sobriety at that point. But I still went and collected that chip at my first meeting. Now, each chip after that is typically a direct reflection of your length of sobriety. The next chip comes at the 30-day mark. And typically, each subsequent chip comes in 30-day increments until you reach 180 days or about 6 months. After that, you usually get one at 9 months, then a year. And beyond that, each additional chip is earned for each additional year of sobriety. And you may remember me saying in a previous episode that I had started an internal competition within myself to see how many consecutive days of sobriety I could string together. So in my fourth week in the house, I would be receiving my 60-day chip. And I was pumped, because at that time, this meant I was sober. Like, really sober. Like, sober sober. And of course, it's all relative to the individual. But for some reason, I really looked at this chip like a huge milestone. I guess it's because of the situation, meaning the first chip, for whatever reason, I didn't feel like I had earned, probably because in my head, that chip was more contrived. And I say that because that chip was earned while I was in treatment. Not like I was being held there against my will or anything, but my environment for that first 30 days was very controlled. But this chip, this 60-day chip, was earned in the real world, meaning I had ample opportunities and resources at any given time to jump off the proverbial bandwagon and drink again. But I didn't because of a decision I had made back in treatment to give a life of recovery a chance. And now I was able to reap a small, tangible reward for that decision. And the cool thing about the whole chip system is that they give it to you before the meeting in front of everyone. So it gives you something to look forward to at each milestone and in a way provides a small hint of accountability. Now, the other cool thing about this story, at least to me, was that my friend, known around here as Amanda, came to the meeting to watch me get my chip. That was the first time I had seen her in over six months, and really the first time I felt any sense of normalcy since entering treatment over 60 days prior. Now, the other cool thing that happened that week was that I graduated to Tier 2 in the house, which meant I got to sleep out one night each week moving forward. And that probably doesn't seem like a big deal to most people. But remember, I had been in a facility or a sober living home for the last 60 days, which meant I've been sharing a room with at least one person and living day to day with up to 60 people for the last 60 days. I couldn't wait to head home back to my own house for a little peace and quiet, even if it were just for a night. Now the problem, in my head, I had just graduated to tier two, but in reality, I had yet to confirm with the house manager, and it's not like it's top of mind for him. He's got 15 other people and their issues to deal with, and for some reason, asking him if I had leveled up was terrifying in my head. What if he says no? What if he says that I haven't done enough to warrant it? Again, that anxiety kicking in for no reason. And sure enough, when I asked him, he was like, yeah, man, you've done everything we've asked. 
You're good. Just make sure to make good decisions. Oh, baby. I'm back. Let the party begin. I started calling all of my friends to let them know. Get ready. J-Man is coming home. And there was a home football game that weekend. Tailgates, parties, football. I mean, what more could I ask for in terms of my homecoming? Now, actually, (laughs) I'm lying. None of that happened. Well, the football game was happening, and the tailgates, and the parties. But I only reached out to a select few to let them know I was coming home. I really didn't want anyone to know I was coming back. Primarily because I knew I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to test my will. I wasn't ready to test my self-control. And honestly, I was still a little scared. How would people react? What would they say? I just knew that a large social event and carefree environment dominated by alcohol was not a good decision. And if you want to know a little secret, I'm still afraid of alcohol till this day. And it's one of the driving forces behind my decision to not drink still. And you may think it's because of the bad choices I'll make, or the anxiety it creates after, or the medical issues. And while it is all of that, it's mainly from this strange fear that I'll immediately go back to my condition on that day, August 26, 2016. Like, I'll immediately skip the entire alcoholic progression and skip straight into a state of chemical dependency after one day or night of drinking. And while that fear may be irrational... I'm ironically grateful for it. It's actually one of the reasons I'm so thankful that my alcoholism got so bad. What was once my best friend now scares me more than a Freddy Krueger movie did at five years old. And don't lie, that movie scared you too. Probably still does. Anyways, nothing very eventful happened that weekend. I hung out with a few friends that Saturday, then headed back to my sober living house that Sunday. But, before I left, something prodigious happened. One of my best friends called and wanted to grab lunch before I headed out. We really didn't get to hang out on Saturday because he was out tailgating all day. So I went to his house and picked him up, and he looked rough. Not only did he look rough, but he felt it too. He started telling me how awful he felt, not only from the drinking, but also from all the ridiculous things he did the night before. He had all of this day after anxiety that I knew all too well. And I just kept thinking, man, I'm glad that's not me. I mean, how many Sundays in my life did I spend feeling that same exact way? But in that moment, that very simple moment, I received the greatest confirmation that choosing a life of sobriety was and will be the greatest choice I ever make. Now I want to shift my focus, and as I mentioned earlier, today's recovery topic is an important one. A very important one. Because today we are talking relapses. An old baseball coach of mine used to always tell me, baseball is a game of failure. If you get a hit 3 out of 10 times or 30% of the time, you'll always have a spot in anyone's lineup. And for some reason, that always seemed to put it into perspective, how hard the game of baseball is. Now let me put into perspective how hard recovery is. And if you listen to episode 9, you remember me saying the following statistic. 40-60% to of people relapse in their first 30 days of leaving treatment. And 85% of people relapse within their first year. Think about that. 85% of all people who go to treatment will relapse within the first year. Except with recovery, especially for addicts, your first quote-unquote at-bat could be your last. It's truly life or death for most people in recovery. And I'll explain why shortly. So why do people relapse? I mean, they've been to treatment, they're feeling really good... Their family's on board and supports them. They've got their whole life in front of them. 
Why on God's green earth would they ever decide to drink or drug again? Now, I don't have enough time to speak on every reason, nor do I know every reason, but I think I can answer this from a fairly high level. And to me, there are two primary reasons. Have you ever told yourself at any point in your life that you wanted to lose weight so you're going to start eating healthier? And maybe if you were really serious about it, you'd start working out as well? You probably researched all of the different diet trends at the time trying to decide which one best suited you. And at that point, you either set a time frame goal like 30 days or a weight loss goal of let's say 10 pounds. And so you start down your new healthier path of life and it's going great. You're a couple of weeks in and you're feeling great. You're looking great. You're fired up. You're telling all of your friends and co-workers about your new plan. They're telling you how great you look. It's all amazing. And then, sure enough, 30 days later or 10 pounds later, you reach your goal. And what an amazing accomplishment. Seriously. You set a goal, created a plan, and after a lot of hard work and effort, you achieved your desired outcome. And again, you probably reaped all of these amazing benefits through the process. You lost weight, you became healthier, and not just physically, but emotionally and mentally too. Now let me ask you a question. Are you... To this day, still following that same diet plan and workout schedule? Probably not. And if you are, kudos to you. And I mean that. But let me ask you a follow-up question. Have you done it every day? Seven days a week? Year after year? Without ever missing a single day? Well, of course not. Even though there are all of these insanely positive benefits of eating healthy and working out every single day, a large portion of society still decides not to do it. Why? Because it's freaking hard. Like insanely hard. And the small percentage of people that do commit to it every day still take days off. And eat unhealthy occasionally. And I'm not using this example to make anyone feel like less of a person if they don't diet or work out. I'm using this relevant real life example to explain how hard it is for addicts and alcoholics to walk a road of recovery. It's insanely freaking hard. They're told they have to give up the one thing that has been there for them in their worst of times. And they're not giving it up for 30 days or 10 pounds. They're giving it up for the rest of their lives. Think about giving up anything forever or doing something forever that's relative to your life. It's just a tough ask for anyone, alcoholic or not. Now I mentioned a minute ago that there were two primary reasons we relapse. So what's the second one? I think it's simple. It's something called hope. And here's what I mean. Let's use me as an example. I get out of treatment and I have all of these reasons to keep fighting. I have my career. I have my family. I have my house. In a nutshell, I have hope. Now don't get me wrong. I had a lot of despair and destruction to clean up as well. But I also had light at the end of the tunnel. And a lot of reasons to keep fighting. But a lot of addicts and alcoholics aren't in that same position. There's no career to go back to. There's no family to go back to. There's no home to go back to. So what are they fighting for? Well, they're fighting for their lives. But it's hard for them to see the prosperity through the cloud of despair. A lot of times they get out of treatment with the right mindset and maybe even the right plan. Just like the person starting a new diet. And things go well for the first 30 days or 60 days or even 6 months. But at some point, sobriety isn't enough. Because life gets hard. The job isn't paying as well. The ex isn't letting them see their kid. The court cases aren't going as planned. So what's their solution? Well, according to the statistic, 85% of the time, it's drugs or alcohol. And as I mentioned earlier, for many of us, it's life or death. Their next time could be their last time. 
especially for addicts. Their bodies aren't used to the same quantities as before, but they go straight back to the same amounts, which is honestly what causes a lot of overdoses right out of treatment. So what's the solution? I think we need to do everything we can to inspire hope for people in recovery. And that doesn't mean with just our words, but with our actions. Talk to them about potential career paths. Talk to them about the benefits of going back to school, whether it be for a GHD, a degree, or trade. If you own a business, offer them a job if available. Take them under your wing and watch them soar. If you're familiar with personal finances, work with them at their financial situation. And look, I know we don't live in a perfect world, and I know all of this is a lot easier said than done. I'm just offering solutions on how society as a whole can help move the statistic needle. And for anyone who may be listening, especially any alcoholics or addicts, I want you to take away this. Don't look at a relapse as a failure. Don't look at 10 relapses as a failure. Look at them as learning experiences. Like Mark Twain once said, good decisions come from experience. Experience comes from making bad decisions. So use each of these experiences as building blocks to your eventual forever day one. Now this is the part in the episode where I'm going to transition my focus to the daily five. And today, I want to talk about an aspect of the Daily Five that is near and dear to my heart, financial fitness. And it should be considering my degree is in finance and I've worked in finance my entire professional career. Now, I would describe myself as fiscally conservative. People that know me, well, they would probably describe me as um cheap, and I'm okay with that. I actually wear it as a badge of honor, and I'm not sure why I'm that way. I've often thought about it. And I would assume that it probably has something to do with the way I grew up. Now, I've mentioned in previous episodes that I grew up relatively poor, but at the same time, I always had everything I needed. It just wasn't always exactly when I wanted it. My mom was a single mother, and she worked hard, very hard, to provide for us. But as we all know, life is expensive. So I guess the idea of delayed gratification has stuck with me over the years. So what I want to do now is tell you the three things you must do at all times to truly be financially fit. And these three things aren't rocket science. They are simple in theory, but sometimes difficult to execute. And you may be doing some of them today, but are you doing all three is the question. And look, there are plenty of other things that you should be doing financially as well, but you have to start here. First and foremost, create a budget. A daily budget, a weekly budget, a monthly budget. You have to have an intimate understanding of how much money you're earning versus how much you're spending. And you'll understand why this is important in a second. And when I say you have to have a budget, I don't mean an idea. You need to sit down and truly understand how much you're bringing in on a monthly basis and how much you're spending on a monthly basis. Understanding your income is the easy part for most people. It's the expenses they don't want to look at. So start here. Understand what is a necessity versus what is a desire from an expense standpoint. And really analyze those two. What are your fixed expenses, meaning the dollar amount each month doesn't vary or varies very little, like your mortgage or rent, your car note, your cell phone, internet. You get the point. Then understand your variable expenses, like your monthly grocery expense or your monthly gas expense. Everyone is different, so these expenses will be slightly different for each of you. But once you've done that, you've now got an idea of what your monthly expenses are from a necessity standpoint. Next, and this is the most difficult, 
you're going to analyze your spending in the wants category. Start by looking at your credit card bill or bank statements for the last three months. And again, these types of expenses will definitely be different for everyone, but you can easily identify what is truly a want expense and what is a need expense. The point to this exercise is to identify ways to reduce your spending in the wants category. Where can you delay some gratification? Now once you've done that, you'll be able to quickly identify if you are working with a monthly surplus or deficit, meaning you're earning more than you're spending or you're spending more than you're earning. And this is important because the second thing you have to do to be financially fit is you have to save money. Why is saving money important? Well, I could list a million reasons, but the most important reason is the emotional fitness aspect of it. So let me ask you a question. What sounds more stressful? Spending more than you make, always waiting on the next paycheck, and always worried about a random major expense popping up, or earning more than you spend, putting money aside each month, knowing that if a random major expense presents itself, you've got the nest egg to cover it. I know which scenario I'd prefer. And I've mentioned this before, the feeling you get from frivolous spending is fleeting. That new outfit or new phone or new pair of shoes feels good when you first buy it. But soon after, you're searching for the next thing to buy. You know what isn't fleeting? Peace of mind. The peace of mind of knowing that all of your bills are covered each month and there's no major expense that you can't handle. I promise you. And it may not sound sexy, but whoever said peace of mind is sexy? I know it definitely isn't sexy financial anxiety and stress. And I'm not saying you can't buy those toys or outfits, just make sure you're able to save money as well. And the last critical component of financial fitness is a strong personal credit rating. If you have excellent credit, then this doesn't apply to you, and congrats. But if your credit needs improvement, then you need to work on that. And you're not sure how to do it? Reach out for help. There are professionals that are willing to help, many of whom won't even charge you. Look at your credit report and come up with a plan. That's why understanding your budget and saving money is so important. It'll best equip you to begin the credit repair process. Think about all of the benefits once your credit starts to improve. You no longer have to dodge the bill collector calls. You can qualify for that house or car you've always dreamed of. Again, I know it sounds basic, but think of it this way. Imagine your life where you have a solid budget, a surplus of money each month, and the personal credit to buy whatever you need. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like financial fitness to me. And more importantly, peace of mind. Because at the end of the day, that's what I'm striving for. Peace of mind. Like I always tell people, if you live like you're broke, you never will be. And if you live like you're rich, you never will be. As always, I want to thank you for listening. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, please reach out to me with any feedback or suggestions for the show moving forward. I have provided my contact information in the show notes. Join me next week as I talk about my second month in sober living, answer more tough questions related to alcoholism, and tackle the most important aspect of the Daily Five, spiritual fitness. You won't want to miss it. And again, thanks for listening. And I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. (laughs) 